You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. I told you guys uh, a few weeks ago that we were going to be uh, walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we're calling it countercultural for obvious reasons in that everything that Jesus is going to lay out this summer for us in the longest sermon that he preaches in the Gospels uh, is very much countercultural. It would have shocked everyone around him to hear, to hear the things that he was saying about how to live. And so what I also told you is this, that for the last eight weeks, if you have your Bibles, open them there. You can check it out on your phone as well or you can look on the screens. You're going to see this play out. Uh, what I also told you in the, in the last several weeks leading up to this was uh, for the springtime, we looked at the diagnostic. And so what we did, if you haven't been with us, is we looked at seven churches in the book of Revelation that mostly did not have it figured out. And so week after week, we would come to you and say, this is why, you know, the church uh, over here is dysfunctional. And this is why the church of Philadelphia has it figured out. And then, you know, so we just broke those church, churches down for you. And what we did uh, is we gave you the diagnostic. Here's the problem. And so what we want to do this summer is we want to give you the prescription. And, and so my point is this, that without a prescription, a diagnostic is really not that valuable. I mean, so, so let me just give you a, a personal example. This is my life on display, and I'm going to break every HIPAA law to get there. I, I went to the doctor, and the doctor actually was at the first service. Uh, I picked him because I thought, well, he, he seems to love Jesus, and he knows stuff about medicine. So I went to get my physical from a guy that goes to New Life, and uh, he's giving me my physical, and then he asked me, when's the last time I ever had my blood work done? And I thought, I don't know, it's been a while, I'm not that old, I shouldn't have to do things like this. And he said, well, actually, you should have done it a long time ago, and you are kind of old. Uh, and so if, if you guys know this stage that you're entering into, uh, when you start to the questions like, uh, do you have a history of colon cancer, congratulations, you're not as young as you think you are. I've never had a doctor say stuff like that to me. But he was asking me stuff like that, and I thought to myself, are you mistaking me for somebody that's actually old? And uh, so he starts doing these things, and uh, he asked me about my family history and, and so forth. And so then I get my blood drawn, and then he calls me, or his nurse calls me later, and she tells me, um, your cholesterol is high. And so then um, I thought, there's no way that that's true. Uh, Brandon talked to me. He said, you need to lose weight. And then I told my wife, I need to lose weight. And she said, because she loves me, I thought, she goes, you don't need to lose weight, you're fine. And I said, oh, okay, it's just a doctor that's saying it. I'm sure you know more. And then I got offended, and then she kept pushing back on me. And I thought, well, do you want to just have me die early so that you can collect my life insurance? And uh, that's how that went. But uh, I, I just, I tell you all that to say this. I got the blood work done. The, the numbers were not off the charts high. In fact, I, I think I had, last service was a lot more people. I think I had like 20 or 30 people come up to me and tell me about their cholesterol rates. And so um, if you want to share that information, we can have group therapy. And I found out mine aren't actually the highest. But my point is this. If it ended there, if I went, you know, thanks, Brandon, for the information. Um, cool. I'm just going to take these numbers and continue to eat more fried chicken and do nothing about it. If all I had was the diagnostic, then really what I would have if I did nothing is a death sentence. And he gave me two options as a prescription. He said, you can eat healthier and you can try it on your own. Or, have you guys been there? Am I alone? Has anyone been through this? 
Uh, or you can get on meds. And I thought, well, you know, I, I said, give me a few days to think about it, and I still haven't decided yet, which is why everyone was talking to me after the last service. Um, but my point is this, if I just have this diagnostic of congratulations, your cholesterol's high, and then I do nothing about it in terms of a prescription, then basically I'm walking around with a death sentence because every diagnostic needs a prescription. And so what we wanna do this summer is we want to give you a prescription on what it looks like, according to Christ, to live counterculturally. What do we do with the fact that sin is the problem and Jesus is the answer? How do we actually live that out? He tells his leadership team, point blank, this is how I want you to live. He basically bleeds out this manifesto on what the kingdom of God should look like. This is how everyone else lives, but this is what I want from you. Here's the diagnostic, but don't miss the prescription. And so the backstory, because it's week one of this sermon series, is very simple. His ministry hadn't been going that long. Jesus had become very popular, and so he's healing sick people, he's uh, you know, raising dead people, he is casting out demons, people that are having seizures. All of a sudden, in a world where there's lots of sickness, when you start doing those things, everyone takes name, takes name, they know who you are. And so large crowds are following Jesus, but then the Bible says, as chapter five starts of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that he finds this mountain that we know in other scriptures he goes to repeatedly, and he finds this mountaintop to get away from the large crowds. And as he gets away from the large crowds, what he does is he calls his leadership team to himself, and he has a conversation of what he expects from them in his new kingdom. What does it look like to live counterculturally? Look at verse one with me. You can follow along on the screens. He says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so he's looking them in the eyes. It's personal. He's been on this mountain before. He'll be on this mountain again. And so now he's going to tell them things that are a shock to their system. Because these good Jewish men who were fishermen, had already had this prescription on how to live out their life. They're oppressed by the Roman government, and at some point, the Messiah is gonna come. They know that the Messiah is, you know, Jesus. They're, they've been long awaiting for him, and he gives them this prescription of how to live differently, and it's a shock to their system because it's different than everything they ever expected, and here's how he lays it out. It's just maybe a show of hands so we know who's in the room. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Beatitudes? Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. That's what he's gonna lay out today. We're gonna get to the first half. And what he's saying when he says blessed is he's saying happy are those who live this way and happy are those who live with the kingdom ethic. And here's how he starts it off. He opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but it's never been my lifelong dream to be broke. Maybe my reality, but not my dream. So these guys are already living under oppression. They're already living with not as much as the Roman government around them. They're, they're fishermen. They're not exactly killing it financially. And he opens up his kingdom ethic with, blessed are the poor, and they're the ones that are gonna get heaven. And so it's important for us to create a theological framework for what he's actually saying, because what he's actually saying has nothing to do with money. He says poor in spirit. He's not talking about their checkbook and their bank account. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, blessed are those people who are spiritually bankrupt because those are the people who understand what it means to follow me. Here's the theological framework for this whole idea. You don't 
know God until you first know you're standing with God and the fact that you're a sinner. And the good news is that Christ provides an answer, a remedy, his blood for sin. He dies in our place and then he rises from death so that we can have life. But the starting point theologically is that spiritually you're bankrupt and until you understand that, you don't understand anything. He says, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt because those are the ones who are gonna get it. Then he says this, it's like more bad news. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those that are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I mean, isn't it good news that God has this special place for the least of these? You see it all throughout the New Testament. Blessed are those people who understand their sin, and as a result of understanding their sin, they're mourning and they're grieving, and now he's gonna get to the good news of the storyline. All of these things are preparing the way so that you can understand who I truly am. Blessed are the meek. This one would have rocked their world. The kingdom of God being about people that are meek had nothing to do with the idea that they saw about the kingdom of God. The Roman oppressors had power, they had authority. The way that you had more power than someone else is that you had more blood on your sword than the person next to you that you were fighting against. It was all about power, it was all about authority. And so then he flips the scripts and he said, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are the gentle, and this would have been massively countercultural for him to say these things. And so what I wanna do for you this morning on Father's Day is this. Dads, I want you to take note. I wanna lay out a principle that I think will change your family. I know it'll change your marriage, but most importantly, this is where it starts. It'll change the way you view God, and it'll change the way you live out your faith. That's the promise. If you're sleeping, wake up. No one sleeps when we talk about what we're about to talk about today. This is changing my life, this principle. That's my sell point. Are you ready? Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the whole topic. What does it look like to be holy? What does it look like to be righteous? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, this is what everyone wants, since sin first entered into the equation, we've all been searching intrinsically for this thing that we don't even know we're searching for, for they shall be what? What does it say? Satisfied. The great theologian Mick Jagger said, I can't get no what? And he tries, and he tries. If you're a teenager, you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he tries, wake up here, and he tries. I mean, if you're saved, then you've found this remedy, Christ saving you, rescuing you, giving you his righteousness, and you understand what real satisfaction looks like. But if you're in the vast majority of people that have rejected Christ, either directly or indirectly, by just not really caring about the things of God, then you're still searching. In fact, maybe even if you're a Christian, you still have this compartment of your life, like so many of us, where you know Jesus is who he says he is, and you give him this area of your life, but there's this whole other area that's just begging for satisfaction, that's begging for significance, that's begging for, you know, that's just hungering after the things of the world. I, I wanna read it to you again, and I wanna break down something that I think is important. Let's put that verse back up there. I want you to see it one more time. This is our verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here's something that's very interesting to me. I have never, I know this is gonna shock you, I have never gone without food for long periods of time. So just let that sink in, because looking at me, you're like, is that possible, right? 
I've never gone without food for long periods of time, and I would be willing to bet, even if your bank account is almost empty, you have the same reality. Because we live in the Midwest, first of all, which there's food everywhere, we make it. But we live in America, which is the richest country in the world. That's, those are the facts. And so when I see this, when I look at the word hunger, look at it with me. When I look at the word hunger, I think, man, you know, McDonald's wasn't open as late during COVID, and I missed out. When I look at hunger, I go, man, I shouldn't have had that health shake for breakfast because now I'm preaching the second service and I'm starving. Right? That's my idea of malnourishment, that I'm a little inconvenienced. This is not the script of the New Testament. When they talk about hunger and thirst, there were droves of people that were malnourished, that were starving to the point of death, and Jesus is addressing something that they already would have known about. These are fishermen. It wasn't just assumed. When he says, I'm the bread of life, they had a physical context for that. If you didn't work hard, there was no social security system. And if you didn't work hard, you starved. There were people in their world, in the arena that they were living in, who didn't have food that they knew of that would have died that were malnourished. It wasn't like the United States. And so he says this. He says, when you hunger and thirst, this is real to them, for righteousness, this is the goal, this is the pursuit, for my name's sake, when you pursue my righteousness, then you are going to be satisfied. And what the deal is, is this is what's so important about that. When he talks about hunger and thirst, what he's talking about is a desperation. And so I want you to fill that into the verse. Read it with me in this context, because this is how they would have understood it. Blessed are those who are desperate. You ever been desperate? You ever been in a bad high school relationship? You ever been desperate, right? Blessed are those who are desperate for righteousness. Blessed are those who are desperate for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or maybe he could say it like this. Happy are those who are morally bankrupt. Happy are those who mourn for their condition. Happy are those who are meek and humble and desperate, because when you get to the lowest point, then you understand the gospel and who Jesus is in your life, that he is the only thing that can satisfy. Being broken is not the worst place you can be because it's the place where you meet Christ. I wanna break this verse down our first week into this, and I want you to own this because my promise to you at the end of it is there's gonna be something here that if you're not seeing this right, you're not understanding the text and it's affecting the way you live out your faith. But the first thing I wanna to bring to light is this, just using the metaphor of hunger. Anyone ever been on a diet? One person, that's amazing, wow. I don't know if that makes us really healthy or you know, the other, but um, here, you know this is true if you've been on a diet. What we crave determines what we eat. And here's the vicious cycle, right? What we crave determines what we eat, and what we eat determines what we crave said every healthy person that drives you crazy ever. Have you ever had someone that just drives you bonkers that has everything in check in their personal life with their food? And they say, well, I eat so healthy, I just crave vegetables. It's like, get out of here, don't come back to new life. We don't, we don't like your, no, I'm just kidding. Right? But what we crave determines what we eat, and the flip side of that is what we eat determines what we crave. And I want you to look at that through a spiritual lens. When it comes to the spiritual things of God, when it comes to righteousness, what we crave, if we hunger and thirst, if we're desperate for righteousness, right, the byproduct is that we're gonna feast on those things and the inverse is also true. 
What we crave determines what we eat. Very practical example. When you have something over a long period of time, you tend to fall in love with it. Uh, Something that every pastor has in common on staff, either here or especially in Peru, they all have this one thing in common, except for me because I'm countercultural. They all, like, we'll we'll go anywhere, and uh, they all want to get coffee. And because Chuck's a manly man, it's black or it's nothing. Uh, And because the rest of them are just a little more millennial, they have a little more flair to their coffee. In fact, Greg has his own coffee business. He bakes the beans in his house or however that works, and he chops them up and he sells them to you, and he, him and his dad do that together. And, uh, and so there's this added pressure on me, like, don't I love Greg? He's one of our pastors. He's one of my absolute best friends. He's like a little brother to me. Don't, don't I want to support him? And the answer is absolutely not, because I hate coffee. I hate coffee to the point of, and this is always the response, if you have it enough, are you tracking? If you have it enough, you'll fall in love with it. I'm thinking, why would I want to have something that's horrible enough? If I, if I eat out of an ashtray enough, I'll fall in love. Why would I want to do that? Micah, who's just really a positive guy, he like had this idea. We were having, he likes to go to that place downtown. Have you guys been to that place downtown that's very kind of uh, uppity? It's really cool and trendy. They have this new park outside. If you want to take someone on a date, it's like the perfect spot. Have you guys seen it downtown? It's where the Malchow's burned down. It's, you know, it's kind of the who's who's club, and so that's where, of course, why I go there. But um, everyone drinks coffee there, and Micah and I and uh, the other pastors were there the other day, and he said, man, you've got to, you haven't had the right type of coffee, right? Once you have the right type of coffee, then you'll crave it. And so he gives me this uh, chai tea coffee thing. I'm not exaggerating. It literally tastes like cat urine. It's disgusting. <laughs> and, and the next week, I'll tell you how I know what cat urine tastes like. I mean, but... But it's like, why would I want to do something so stupid? What we crave determines what we eat, and what we eat determines what we crave. These things are even biologically wired within us. These patterns make a difference. When I married my wife, I married a Midwest girl. There's things that I didn't know. My dad growing up was the, uh, a connoisseur of the art of grilling to the point where I never grilled because he was the grandmaster of it. And so now, even today, Anne does the grilling in our house. Uh, But when we were walking through the process of marriage, I remember I took her to a fancy restaurant. I'll date all of you and see what you know about Aberdeen. Something fancy like the steak and buffet. Do you guys remember that? And I I remember having a steak with her. I can't remember if that's where it was at or if I'm making that part up. But I remember going there or somewhere with her, and I remember she did something that was absolutely food blasphemy. She says to me, we get this steak. She says to me, hey, can you pass the ketchup? And like, can you leave? I mean, that's like absolute <laughs> blasphemy if you come from a background that has, I mean, how many of you guys know, Greg, just speaking of Greg, he loves to grill, and if you don't compliment him, that's, that's an offense. He's really good at it. He smokes it. He marinates it. And so if you take sauce and you just dump it on it, especially ketchup, I mean, you are literally blaspheming the process of eating meat the way God designed you to eat it. And she, I thought to her, I'm like, man, I realized it didn't matter what it was, just a, just a quick show of hands. How many of you like corn dogs? Mustard? Ketchup? Midwest, okay? Never had that before. You put ketchup on everything. It's like a fine wine. Here, give me some ketchup for the ice cream. We need to make this thing taste right. That's my wife. She puts ketchup on everything. And my point is, is just very simple. What we crave determines what we eat. And what we eat determines what we crave. 
Jesus is saying this to his people. In my kingdom, crave righteousness. Hunger and thirst for it. Here's the second thing. What we eat determines how we feel. Very practical stuff. This is all kind of spinning around in my head this week as I'm preparing this message. I thought, oh, that's kind of clever. I'm going to write that down. Here you go. This is free. Ready? What we eat determines how we feel. How many of you know this is true? You've eaten something that felt good for about an hour, like Mazatlan's, and then not so much. Have you guys ever dealt with this clinical term known as uh, eater's remorse? Basically, every time I go to Mazatlan's or eat too much dairy, about an hour or half an hour in, all of a sudden you're going, oh my goodness, what have I done? Have you ever walked out of a movie theater and you thought it was a good idea to have that daily caloric intake thing of popcorn with extra butter mixed with some juju fruit, and you realized about an hour in that that was going to go back out of your system as soon as you got home from the movie theater? What you eat determines how you feel. Using the metaphor of food, here's what I think it's like. Sin is junk food. Sin is junk food. It tastes good for a period of time, and it leaves you absolutely empty. This really isn't even just an idea or a thought. This is provable. The the idea is what, what you eat determines how you feel, and garbage in, garbage out. It's true on a physical level, but it is so true spiritually. I shared something with you guys about six months ago that some of you have asked me about. I want to bring it up again. There is a phenomenon going on with high school girls. Not not an opinion, this is a fact. Uh, The Social Dilemma has documented this, and a lot of you have probably seen that documentary on Netflix. And what the dilemma is, the phenomenon that's going on, is there is this uptick in hospitalizations amongst girls that are 12 to 18 years old. And it's anywhere in the neighborhood from 200 to 300% in terms of inpatient settings for behavioral issues, specifically regarding self-harm, and uh, other destructive thinking patterns regarding hurting yourself. And so if you're not a mental health person, let me just tell you this. Two to 300% is huge. Right? 20 to 30% is big. Two to 300% is off the charts. And it's all in the last 15 years. So, so just help me understand this and take the correlation and connect it together. What's the correlation in the last 15 years? What's the garbage in in the last 15 years? If you think you know it, just say it out loud. I've said it before in church. It's social media, right? It's I have one million times that I've taken a picture of myself and sent it to someone else so that I can feel somewhat satisfied by someone else gaining uh, approval through my own lens and I can say, these people are really important to me and I'm important to them because I've sent them like 500,000 pictures of myself and posted a thousand things on social media so that everyone knows how great I am. And then at the same time, I can see how great everyone else's life is, which is just hyper-reality and a bunch of garbage. The reality is this. When you put that garbage on such a level in your life, it has this background or this side effect of then crushing you because your mind's not ready for it and God's not designed you to will it. When you do those things, all of a sudden now you have these depression rates that soar high. The outcome of putting garbage into your life, taking sin and junk food and consuming it on such a large quantity is this. What you eat determines how you feel. That's good and bad. Because then when you put the things of God in your life and pursue righteousness, all of a sudden that can invert. Jesus is giving a prescription 
from the diagnosis, and he's telling us as a church, this is how you live differently. What you eat determines how you feel as a follower of Christ. So, so here's the big one. Here's the one that I made this insane promise because I felt like on a, on a summer day, you just needed an incentive to pay attention. This is the one that's been really challenging me this week. It's the end of the verse. Jesus makes this promise about the end goal of consuming righteousness and what it produces. And here's what he says. He says that this thing produces satisfaction in your life when nothing else can produce. Here's the thing that we have that no one that doesn't follow Christ has. It's satisfaction. In a world that's absolutely starving for purpose, for meaning, and for substance, Christ's promise to his people and his church is that we can be satisfied by hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You can't get satisfaction from trying harder. I want you to hear me say this. It only comes through the process of surrendering to Christ. And satisfaction is that thing that sets us apart that no one else that doesn't have Christ has any part of. And so there is this idea that I heard this week that I want to share with you. One of them is this. In fact, I just want to throw this out there. This is something that's really been affecting my prayer life. I want you to write it down. To receive happiness, you have to first pursue holiness. I'm going to say that one more time. To receive happiness, you have to pursue holiness. What does Jesus say? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what's the promise? And all of the peripheral, all of these other things will be added onto your life. You can't put the cart before the horse. Before the horse. There is this uh, illustration that I told the first service regarding cancer, and I, I don't want to be doom or gloom, but I think it's a very vivid illustration. I heard a guy say this week, he said this. He said, this whole idea of pursuing righteousness instead of just happiness, it, you have to look at it through the metaphor of a diagnosis. And so he said to his church, this pastor, who was MacArthur, he was talking in California, and I was listening to this sermon from 1998, and he said this, he said, to pursue happiness instead of holiness, which leads to happiness, or to pursue righteousness and to get that reality of happiness in your life, if you don't get that in the right order, this is what's been really impacting me this week, it's like getting a cancer diagnosis and not having the right prescription. He told his church 23 years ago, and it still just rings true today. I love this illustration. He said, it's like going to the doctor and you know something's not right, you don't feel quite right, so you need to get checked out, and you go to the cancer doctor and they say, I have really bad news for you, Rodney. Uh, you have cancer, but I also have some good news. It hasn't spread much. It's been pretty much contained to this little area of your life and so, or your body. And so what we can do right now in this moment, in this window of time where you can still get the right prescription, is we can go in there, we can put you under the knife, we can cut this thing out of your body. And it would be like me looking at the doctor and, and saying to the doctor, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I don't want cancer for sure, but I'm really scared of knives. And I'm really scared of being put under anesthesia. 
And, and to be honest with you, my schedule's so busy right now, I think I'm just gonna pass. And what I wanna do is because I don't want to deal with this discomfort, what I want you to do is just simply give me some pain medication to numb the pain. I want some temporary happiness instead of actually dealing with the root problem. Here's what I want you to write down. The world pursues the pain and the remedy for the pain. Jesus Christ pursues the problem. Jesus Christ looks at your heart. If you are saved, if he's called you out of darkness into light, and he doesn't just address the temporary discomfort, he's not just trying to make you happy for happiness sake. Happiness, here's what I want you to see. Here's what's rocked my world. Happiness is a byproduct of holiness. You pursue the righteousness. This is the command of scripture. He says, happy are those, happy are those, happy are those. He says, happy are those who are desperate for what? Here's what he doesn't say. He does not say to his church, happier are those who are desperate for happiness, for those are the ones that are satisfied. He says, happy are those who are desperate to know me and me crucified, to know my righteousness implanted into their life. And when they get the righteousness, then they get the happiness, then they get the satisfaction. He is more concerned about the condition of your heart and cutting out the sin in your life so that you cannot have the pain than simply masking over the pain so that you can temporarily be happy. Are we hearing that? How many dysfunctions are in the local church because we've been trying to wheel people in? You can have a better life if you come to new life. You can have your marriage fixed if you come to new life. Your wildest dreams can come true if you come to church three out of four Sundays a month. That's not the promise of scripture. The promise of scripture is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. The byproduct of righteousness is happiness. Happiness is not the end pursuit. The end pursuit is Christ, I wanna know you and I wanna know you crucified and when I take your righteousness and I make that the priority in my life, then you add the other things. It's not an inverse order. For me, that has been rocking my world. Am I actually pursuing Christ because I wanna be like him? That I wanna know him? That I wanna love him? He's my end goal or do I? want something from Jesus because he's sugar daddy. Jesus is not a means to an end. Write it down. He's the end. And the end goal is to know him, to love him, and to serve him. Here's the moral inventory, the spiritual inventory. We're going to close out in prayer. I just want to lay this out for you. This has been, the last three days, the questions I've been asking. How do you know that you're pursuing righteousness? That's a big question. How do I know that I'm pursuing righteousness? I can't give you a specific formula, but I think I can give you a few questions that actually I heard someone else talk about that I think are prevalent and relevant for this church. Number one, are you broken over your sin? That's the starting point. It's the starting point in chapter five. And and so when you see your sin, do you have a true repentance for it where you go, Jesus, I've done all of these things, but this isn't who I want to be. Or do you do what 90% of the world is doing right now and justify it? 
do you somehow get prideful about it and go, this isn't even wrong. I'm not even going to admit that the Bible says this is wrong and that somehow the Bible has authority over my life. When you realize the Bible is an authority over your life and it says to live this way and not this way, does does that bring an emotional response to your heart where you go, man, I am a sinner, I am mourning, I am spiritually bankrupt, and I desperately need the Savior. I desperately need Christ. Are you broken over your sin? Here's one that's really thick. Are you ready? This term satisfaction is a big word. It takes on massive meaning. Do a quick inventory. Talk about it at lunch. Question number two. Are things and people the source of your satisfaction? Are likes on social media, just using the teenage analogy, the source of your satisfaction or the source of your discomfort? Or... Is Christ alone the source of your satisfaction? Here's how you know the difference. Even good things become bad things and become God things in your life. The way that you know the difference is, could you take those things away, even good things, family, job, money, whatever it is, fill in the blank, if you took it all away and you lived like the early church and the disciples, would you still have enough? Would you still say, I have Christ and I have Christ alone and so I am gonna live and this satisfaction and contentment in my heart because I know that I have him forever and he's enough. Are people and things the main source of your satisfaction and your identity or is it in Christ alone? That is a massive question. If you can answer that question too quickly, something's wrong. Number three, here's a question. Do you love God's word? When's the last time you read it? Is Sunday the main source of your spiritual life Or is it a supplement to everything going on in your life throughout the week? Do you know what God's word says? Do you feast on it? Do you hunger and you thirst for it? Do you want to be more like Christ because you're seeing who Christ is in your daily devotions? Or is it something that you add a little bit to your life so that you can be a Christian? Last one is this. This is the one that's most convicting for you. How active is your prayer life? I told our team early on, if we're going to reach Aberdeen, we're going to reach Aberdeen by reaching across the aisle and not just reaching the same evangelicals with the same opinions. We're going to reach Catholics, and we're going to reach people that maybe have gone to church their whole life. Not that every Catholic is nominal. Hear me say this right. We're going to reach people who stereotypically follow a set of rules but don't put emphasis on a relationship with Christ. And so mission accomplished, we've done that with some drama in the community. When this fall hits, we'll see hundreds of people that are coming from those backgrounds and calling new life their home. That has been the reality of our situation. And so in those backgrounds, just so you know, it takes one to know one. I was that same person. I grew up like that too. In those backgrounds, you have rituals, do you not? Not all rituals are bad. In fact, some are really good. But when they are how you equate your spiritual life, they become very detrimental. When it's a ritual and not a relationship, you have a problem. In your prayer life, if it's just a ritual, well, at bedtime, I better you know, talk to the big man upstairs and say the prayers with the kiddos. Or it's mealtime, so we better thank the big man upstairs for the prayers or for the food that we're about to eat and the life that we live. If that's all it is and there's not this interactive conversation through the Holy Spirit with Jesus Christ, then it is a key indicator that you're not hungering and thirsting and pursuing righteousness in your life. You're just being religious. How's your prayer life? Last thing. Just a little pastoral note that I need to preach to myself. 
in a moment where I've just been told I have high cholesterol and possibly need medication. Quit eating food that's killing you. Quit eating food spiritually that's killing you. I've been working a lot with youth because all my kids are in youth group. I just, I'll say, I just thought of it. I'll say it real quick. Greg told me this. There was a girl in youth group. No, no shame on her because I checked my own screen time and it was really bad. But I think she was like at 12 hours in a day on her phone. You know what that is? Look at me. That's hypnotic, right? That's like, you're my savior, right? You're my savior. Uh, mine wasn't too good either, but I'm better than her because it wasn't 12. But uh, no. Like 12 hours a day, quit eating food that's killing you. You want to live a godly, righteous life? If you want to live a healthy life, then, qu- then put down the Doritos spiritually and, quit and start serving Christ and make him the main priority in your life. If you spend one to two minutes in his word once a week, or you, know, you spend a little time staring at a screen on Sundays, and then all week long you're feeding yourself with garbage in and garbage in and garbage in, To think that that's not going to affect us spiritually is naive and just stupid. Quit eating food that's killing you. There's a better way. Jesus Christ wants your affections. He is your righteousness. Make him your top priority. How much time as a spiritual leader of your home, dads, are you spending investing in your kids, showing them this is how you live out your faith? This is how you pray. This is how you read your Bibles. This is how you get your butt in church and hear the gospel and work collectively with the body of Christ. Quit eating so much junk food and start feasting on God. Feasting on his son, Jesus Christ, and have his righteousness in that moment of desperation placed on you. Let's go to the word. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. This whole idea of being righteous, it's not something that we accomplish by working hard. We accomplish it by surrendering to who you already are in our life. And if there's anyone in this space, this last service of the day, that doesn't know you as Savior, that that doesn't know what it means to be righteous because of the blood that you shed, because of the resurrection that took place 2,000 years ago, that they can have new life in you by saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of saving, then I pray right now in this moment you'd convict their hearts and that they would have your righteousness placed on them. But for so many of us listening right now in church, we know you as Savior, but we have been eating so much junk food. Feasting on righteousness that you provide isn't even in our top 20 convict our hearts we want to be desperate for your righteousness and we want to be satisfied in you and you alone and we pray this in your name and everybody said amen